Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you know, this show is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. And as you are also aware, the Agora Podcast Network is presenting our first conference, the Intelligent Speech Conference, which will be in New York, New York, on June 29th. I will be there, as will a number of other fascinating, wonderful people, including Mike Duncan himself, David Crowther, Ryan Stitt, and Kevin Stroud. It's going to be an amazing time. It's going to be great hanging out with you all and each other. Previous conferences have been an absolute blast, so I'm really looking forward to meeting you, and please, please come. I'm happy to announce that the ticket prices have dropped, so now's a good time to get on that. And then also, there is a 5%, I think, discount if you use promo code W2W. This is exclusive to my listeners. Get out there, buy some tickets, get your friends to come. It's going to be great. I should also say that this conference and the episodes for the next couple months are going to be presented by FlickChat. Uh, FlickChat's a fun little chat app, and I've got a chat room going now. I'm going to post it in the show notes and uh, pointing down for some reason. Yeah, so FlickChat, check it out. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. And uh, all the Agora podcasters have chat rooms now, so uh, if they haven't shared their uh, room link with you, hit them with something until they do. Speaking of hitting things, another dead horse that I need to hit this month is that donors and patrons are worthy of honor and praise, and they are given regnal names in honor of their contributions to the kingdom. This month, we have one donor worthy of honor and praise, Mary, who shall be known henceforth as Grand Admiral Mary, Vinyl Sides. Thanks very much to Mary, and if you wish to join her and the others in our surried ranks, please go to the website, wittenberg-to-westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the support page. I've differentiated that from the store page. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And go on over to the support page, give us a donation, you can see the, uh, the ranks and everything, and thanks very much. Quote from The Ruin, an Anglo-Saxon poem describing what is now the city of Bath, in England, as it was during the early Middle Ages, as read by B.T. Newberg of the Dead Ideas podcast. Wondrous is this wall stone, broken by fate. The castles have decayed, the work of giants is crumbling. Roofs are fallen, ruinous are the towers with their gates. Frost is on their cement, broken are the roofs, cut away, fallen, undermined by age. The grasp of the earth, stout grip of the ground, holds its mighty builders, who have perished and gone. Till now a hundred generations of men have died. Often this wall, gray with lichen and stained with red, 
unmoved under storms, has survived kingdom after kingdom, its lofty gate has fallen. Bright were the castle dwellings, many the bathhouses, lofty the host of pinnacles, great the tumult of men, many a mead hall full of the joys of men, till fate the mighty overturned that. The wide walls fell, days of pestilence came, death swept away all the bravery of men. Their fortresses became waste places, the city fell to ruin. The multitudes who might have built it anew lay dead on the earth. Wherefore these courts are in decay, and these lofty gates, the woodwork of the roof is stripped of tiles, the place has sunk into ruin, leveled to the hills, where in times past many a man light of heart and bright with gold, adorned with splendors, proud and flushed with wine, shone in war trappings, gazed on treasure, on silver, on precious stones, on riches, on possessions, on costly gems, on this bright castle of the broad kingdom. Stone courts stood here, the stream with its great gush sprang forth hotly, the wall enclosed its bright bosom, there the baths were hot in its center. Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs And this is episode 54, The Class System Part 3 The Commoners Part 2, Cities Part 2 A Narrative of Urban Development Part 1 Oh god Last time we discussed some of the highfalutin theories that urban theorists, like myself, use to explain and understand urban development. Today we will use these theories in conjunction with what we have learned about the European economy, the scant documentary evidence, and the archaeological record to construct a broad narrative of urban development in Europe during the early Middle Ages. This will help us to understand the way urban commoners lived in the Middle Ages in two episodes, because this is going to take two episodes itself. All this city talk, then, will help provide important context as we start to move the narrative forward in the investiture controversy, which, I swear, will begin soon. Sound good? Well, not so fast. Before you go out joyriding on your historical narrative, we're going to have to deal with the historiography and those dang old wigs. The received narrative of medieval historiography of cities goes as follows. Europe as a whole was swept clean of real cities by the fall of the Roman economy. Some settlements held on in the shells of what had once been cities, but they were really more villages. What limited trade as existed was carried on by itinerant traders, moving from village to village and essentially living as vagabonds. They were despised by the nobility and the church of Europe, both of whom scorned making money. These vagabonds formed brotherhoods to try and provide some level of mutual protection and established relationships with various lords who, despite their silly dislike of trade, did like fancy trinkets as a child would. One day, a whole bunch of lords got together and went on the Crusades, where they discovered that they could get more trinkets if they got a bunch of merchants to settle down in cities on their lands like they did in Italy. All the same, the nobles of Europe needed to make sure that they were still on top of the social pile, so the lords would grant these groups of traders written legal contracts called charters, describing their relationship with the settlement. These charters, which started to be issued around the year 1100, allowed the first foundation of new cities since the fall of the empire. The traders living in these settlements were able to take advantage of the new stability of Europe and the new trade contacts with the east caused by the Crusades to usher in two centuries of uninterrupted growth. Settlements went from being small villages to real cities rapidly, a growth that was spurred on by the eagerness of peasants to find freedom in these non-feudal enclaves. 
The original brotherhoods of traders which had first formed the settlements became the first governments, with some of their functions being devolved into the first guilds. Under the unwitting protection of the landed aristocracy, this new bourgeoisie began the first experiments with republican government in Europe, and grew in political power, at least until they were set back by the plague. Eventually, these bourgeoisie would destroy the old aristocrats in the early modern period, and in the process bringing about the industrial revolution and the inevitable triumph of communism. These views have roots that go back to the Enlightenment, but, as you may have noticed, one Karl Marx had a significant hand in collating and giving direction to the diverse ideas of the Enlightenment-era thinkers. Subsequent Whiggish historians, good, temperate liberals to a man, appreciated Marx's devotion to forward progress, but not so much his class warfare, which sounded rather messy, and worked to synthesize and tame his historical theories, eventually resulting in the above-received narrative of medieval urbanism. Elements of this view are still present in college-level textbooks being used as I write this. Unfortunately, most of the key points included have been systematically demolished over the course of the last few decades. While some of the problems were uncovered by new evidence, there are some critical methodological failures that we need to consider before we get to my own flimsy attempts at explaining a more modern alternative. The biggest methodological failure of the received narrative is historical tautology, which, to be fair, is hard to move away from. Now, I should explain this. A normal tautology is a classic logical fallacy, where in the course of an argument I assert that x equals x. A fish is a fish. While true, it's a meaningless argument. In terms of historical inquiry, tautology refers to the error of understanding a phenomenon by reading it backwards in time. Karl Marx knew that the bourgeoisie were important in his time, and that they came from cities, and so he and the historians who followed him sought to find the beginnings of the bourgeoisie by searching backwards in time for them and finding the origins of cities. In some ways, tautologies of this kind are inevitable if we're seeking to understand modern phenomenon which Marx was. But we do need to keep in mind that the things we find important are not the things that people in the past found important. We know that the economic power of cities will one day bring low the old landed aristocracy. That doesn't mean that cities have an inevitable economic power, that they inherently oppose the nobility, or that the nobility of the early Middle Ages were the economic and social dinosaurs that they would become in the early modern period. The tautological failure surrounding charters is confounding not only because of its obviousness, but also because it's still being repeated in modern textbooks. As an example, in the Greenwood Guides book, The Medieval City, eminent historian Norman Pounds uses the existence of a charter as part of his definition of what a medieval city is. In Dr. Pound's estimation, the existence of a written charter is one of the three main things that tells us that a settlement is, in fact, a medieval city. Incidentally, he also says that cities did not exist in Europe before 1100, but there were dozens by 1300, representing something of an urban renaissance. For most of the 20th century, urban historians took this flowering of medieval urbanism as a given fact, and spent a lot of time researching and theorizing about what happened to cause such a social shift in the 1100s. Clearly, there must have been some kind of uptick in the medieval economy and the political institutions, etc. It was, of course, a spooky coincidence that so many cities were founded on the site of old Roman cities. I'm struggling to keep my cool about this because, you know, the historians that these modern historians are reading from, the structuralists, they themselves didn't make this error. They said that we don't know if there were cities before 1100, we just don't have the evidence, and these charters are evidence but they're not the only form of evidence. They're just what we have right now. Somehow this became gospel. 
As I've said in earlier episodes, the period between 1000 and 1200 was the period in which the practice of writing down laws and contracts revived outside of a small number of people in the imperial court and some monasteries. So if we insist that the existence of a charter is key to the definition of a city, and given that a charter is something of a legal document that would be, you know, used by someone outside of a monastery or the imperial government, and given that people weren't writing things down before 1000, we have a situation where cities just can't exist by definition before that time. Obviously, this is completely absurd. Did ancient Rome have a city charter? Did Athens? Heck, cities in other parts of the world in the year 1000 didn't have charters. They certainly had systems of law, but no charters. And thus, according to medieval historians, they weren't cities at all, just large towns. I'm sure the citizens of Constantinople, Baghdad, and Kaifeng would really be interested to learn all this. The other major methodological failure of the received narrative is one that we're all pretty familiar with by this point from earlier episodes. The idea that there is only one narrative of city formation that applies with equal validity across all of Europe is as false as the idea that there was one narrative that described the development of feudalism across all of Europe. This is doubly true in our attempt to understand the development of urbanism because, as I said in the last episode, one of the key factors required for us to understand the development of any given urban agglomeration is the unique set of geographic and historic circumstances that adhere to that specific location. So saying that cities developed across Europe in one manner would be like trying to come up with one narrative to explain the development of Burlington, Vermont, and Houston, Texas. They developed at different times, for different reasons, and in very different ways. Of course, from a storytelling perspective, it's also going to be impossible for me to relate the story of every single city in Europe. So, as we did in the episodes on feudalism, I'm going to try and summarize by sub-area. I'm going to try to break Europe out into a few different zones that have similar stories. In this case, I'm going to do Southern Europe, the part of Northern Europe that had been dominated by Rome, and the part of Northern Europe that had not been dominated by Rome. And as is customary in the show, the best place to start with all three zones is the fall of the Roman Empire. As we have discussed at length, the local economy of late Roman cities was based on a few key factors. First, the cities engaged in a lot of trade and craft production, but these industries ultimately relied on infusions of cash from the central government. There was, however, a consumer market in the form of the members of the senatorial and equestrian classes who demanded goods and services for themselves and their households and also had large patronage networks, and thus material wealth was distributed widely from that source. These rich people got their wealth from their status as administrators of the imperial bureaucracy, so government cash again, and then also from the fact that they own huge tracts of land in the countryside. The key takeaway from this is that the main industry of Roman cities ultimately was not shipping or garum manufacturing or whatever. It was the housing, feeding, and entertaining of rich people. This is an industry that would persist even once the imperial subsidies dried up. As long as the rich still had their vast tracts of land, they would be able to circulate money through the economy. They would, of course, go through a recession due to the collapse of the empire, imperial government and the economy, but the core economic foundation of classical cities was based on landholding and the local administration. This is why I have dwelled so much over all these episodes on the importance of local Roman administration and the cultural pro proclivity towards living in cities amongst the wealthy Roman populations. When the empire fell and the German tribes flooded across the border, the impact that all this would have on these elites and their reaction to them would determine a lot about the social structure of Europe in the Middle Ages in any given area. 
In southern Europe, the rich people just never left the cities, at least not in mass. Even as the economy collapsed, armies laid siege, and plagues raged, the elites of this Mediterranean world stayed put. Some of the reasons for this persistence are undoubtedly cultural, and thus hard to describe, but there are some more concrete reasons worth mentioning. First, geography. Given how southern Europe is cut up into fertile valleys and rocky hills, compact settlement patterns have a certain survival value. The best way to ruin farmland is, of course, to build a house on it. This geography also creates economic choke points and clear trade routes that usually cause these settlements to evolve in the first place. Despite the implosion of the imperial trading system, short-distance trade that we've mentioned over the course of the economic episodes, that continued and it would still be subject to this geography being concentrated down into specific locations. So, for economic reasons, the former senators and equestrians of the empire had a reason to stay in their cities, especially since an involvement with trade was always a part of what made these families rich. But the political economy was also involved. As we discussed way back in our walking tour episodes, the city-focused local administration persisted in southern Europe despite everything that happened. It definitely weakened over time, but this was a strong system with deep local roots, and it took centuries to destroy it. As long-distance trade died out, the men who sat in the local senate still had dispersed land holdings that provided them wealth, and they used this wealth to keep their large households, to run their patronage networks that kept them in power, and fund the civic administration. The dispersed land holdings meant that the loss or damage to one area would not wipe anyone out entirely, and so the wealth continued to flow. But over time, even so, it got harder and harder year after year as more and more areas were lost. Slowly, the scope of the local administration shrank and shrank, and the ambition of local projects lowered. One by one, these wealthy families dropped out of the senatorial and equestrian classes until eventually the only lands that anyone had access to were those in the immediate hinterland of the city. Here, as we've discussed before, the church stepped in, and from an urban history perspective, this is where the Middle Ages really can be said to start in southern Europe. During the empire, each city had its own bishop. The bishops had a whole administrative apparatus, as they were responsible for training priests in their area, seeing that churches were maintained, managing church lands, and settling religious disputes. As the fabric of the empire's economy and society frayed, it was only the bishops who still had enough wealth and authority to conduct the local administration. And so it was that the cities of southern Europe almost all ended up in the hands of a bishop at some point in the early Middle Ages. And those bishops took over tasks like feeding the poor, organizing justice, and seeing to the common defense. They were able to do this because, again, they held significant lands in the area of their city and had something of an administrative system that allowed their wealth to be collected in the city and then distributed. This, of course, made service in the church a good way to access resources, and so the remnants of the old city elites not only turned to the church for leadership in this crisis, they also began joining it. Presumably with a mix of motives, the ranks of the church were soon filled with a variety of sons from these noble families. Over time, these families were able to use these connections to secure resources from the church that allowed them to stabilize their fortunes and gain or regain positions of prominence in their communities. Once this happened, the bishops no longer served a necessary function. Town councils reappeared in which the wealthy men of the city helped with administration, serving a similar function to the old regional senates. In most cases, these bodies came to ease the bishops out of power, a process that often took decades and was often not absolute. In many cities, the bishop would remain a major landowner and a power broker throughout the Middle Ages. They just no longer held all executive and legislative authority. In some places, this process was relatively painless. In others, the parties involved fought bitter and violent struggles against each other in their attempts to secure the resources in question. 
In Rome, as we will see, the popes became pawns in proxy wars between noble families fighting over the resources controlled by the papacy. In Milan, there were running wars between the bishops and the town council, and then between the different members of the town council and each other. Many cities saw the construction of fortified mansions within the cities to provide refuge for the warring families, akin to castles, but within an urban setting. The key point to all this is that the cities remained because they retained an economic function, and as in the empire, that function was political and administrative. These cities were not engines of production or trade per se, though those functions did happen. Instead, the cities were where agricultural resources were collected by a political class that decided to collect them there. Once they were collected, they stimulated the continuation and expansion of the urban agglomeration as staffs were paid, consumer goods collected, and investments were made in trade. The development of that trade is another story, but for now, let's leave these southern European cities and go north, to the parts of Europe that were never part of the empire, and where the story of urbanism could not have been more different. There's actually a lot of ongoing debate about the state of urbanism in pre-Roman and non-Roman parts of Europe. Some historians and archaeologists point to hill forts as potential urban settlements, while others insist that they represent something different, just the fortified holdings of a small family, and they say that there's no evidence of widespread settlement. My hunch is that they represented a form of urbanism unique to the Celto-Germanic peoples of the region, and that archaeology in the next few decades will start to tell us some interesting things about how these agglomerations functioned within the political economy of those societies. They probably don't represent the kind of permanent, large-scale agglomerations that we see in the Mediterranean, but they may have represented temporary agglomerations, which we'll talk more about next episode. In any case, we really lack clear evidence, so I'm just speculating. I can't give you any more definitive statements on the subject, so let's just move on. What I can say is that trade routes into and out of the empire stretched far outside its borders, and that these trade contacts stimulated changes in the social structures of the societies involved. As we discussed in the episodes on the economy, current archaeology suggests that the peoples immediately bordering the empire were able to make great use of technological and social advances made within the empire, but without the burden of all the red tape. We can also say with some confidence that trade routes like the Amber Road and the Silk Road brought trade goods far into northern and eastern Europe. While my research hasn't suggested direct impact from this trade during the height of the empire. As the empire fell, however, there is a pretty clear trend. Even as the cities along the Mediterranean saw their economies take body blows from imperial weakness and the spread of exciting new diseases, the peoples of the Northern Ark were engaged in a trade which may well have been unprecedented in their region. As we discussed previously, these economic contacts were as likely to involve raids as they were to involve sober financial transactions, but the archaeological evidence showed that it, it was happening, it was on a large scale, and that it had started to stimulate economic growth and urban agglomerations. Some of these settlements in question are positively ancient. Visby, a city on Gotland, an island in the Baltic that may have been the home of the Goths as well as the Geats of Beowulf, Visby was inhabited as far back as the Stone Age. It definitely had a thriving community of merchants by 900, but what happened between 900 and the immemorial past is a tale still being examined and uncovered. It seems likely that the central location and excellent harbor of Visby was not an entirely new discovery in the Middle Ages, and that some form of urbanish settlement had existed for a long time. The Frisian settlers in the marshes around the mouth of the Rhine River had long participated in trade, though their marshy homeland had an unfortunate tendency to wiping out their settlements. 
All the same, their comfort with waterborne transportation, their strategic location, and their absolute need for raw materials that they couldn't produce at home meant that they became energetic merchants very early on, trading their local woolen clothes for goods all around the North Sea and even up the course of the Rhine. The region became one of the most densely populated in Europe very early in the Middle Ages, even before cities were founded, and once they were able to figure out how to build settlements that would not be washed away by freak flood events, their towns grew wealthy rapidly. This area, of course, is now the modern Low Countries and was one of the two pilot houses of the medieval economy, the other one being Italy. Other settlements in Central and Eastern Europe can be dated with a fair bit more clarity than the undefinably ancient Visby or the destruction-prone cities of the Low Countries. Urban settlements were very rare in the British Isles, the Nordic countries, and in Eastern Europe before the early Middle Ages. Once the Vikinger pirates began their wanderings, however, settlements were regularly founded at economically advantageous locations. Ports and river rapids were places where goods had to be collected and moved between modes of transportation, and settlements were eventually established in these locations. It probably didn't hurt that, from Dublin to Kiev, the chief cargo being moved was human, and thus required guards. This would have encouraged the development of fortifications and permanent structures. We don't have definitive proof of this, uh, but it's an idea suggested by McCormick, and I agree. But of course, the Vikingers weren't the only people getting into this game. Many peoples around the Baltic and in areas with connections to the North Sea were being stimulated by the growing economy to establish settlements. Given that the foundations of these agglomerations are lost in the past, it's very easy to see modern urban agglomeration theories in the slow rise of these northern settlements, as localized geographic features interfaced with wider economic forces to encourage the organic growth of these settlements. What the true story is, we may never exactly know, but not all the cities in the north are quite so mysterious. As the slaving boom of the 800s died away, and the Frankish Empire crumbled, the project of Christianizing the pagan wilderness of northern Europe continued. In Central Europe, this often took the form of military conquests under Charlemagne's successors. But there was another force at work that we have already mentioned in this show, which had a much wider impact on urbanization, and it might be surprising to you given their reputation. Monasteries. The founders of the medieval monasteries piously sought isolation from the evils of the world, and as we discussed in the episodes on the medieval church, this was an era when monks were moving across Europe, finding isolated places to plant communities of quiet isolation. They called this the Green Exile, or the quest for the green hell, to punish themselves in this life but through this isolation uh, in order to prepare their souls for the next one. Of course, in our modern post-Heisenbergian era, we can maybe spot the folly of this. Once you build a community of monks in an isolated location, it is no longer, you know, an isolated location. This is especially true when we remember that monasteries were full of educated people, had extensive political contacts across Europe, and had unique needs for material goods driven by their uh, extensive religious observations. Just to put icing on the cake, physical labor was often part of the daily routine required of the religious orders, which made them very productive, though these physical requirements were gradually replaced in many cases by intellectual or more directly religious duties, thus requiring other people to come in and fulfill these physical needs. The effect of monastic foundation, especially in Central Europe, was akin to the establishment of agricultural colleges by the U.S. government. From places somewhat randomly selected on a map, communities rapidly formed to service the worldly needs of this intellectual community. 
trade links were established to import what could not be produced locally, and the educated monks gradually helped organize the local society and agrarian practices in conformity with what they felt to be best practice, and, you know, often it was. As the monasteries grew, they brought in local aristocrats to manage their land holdings and merchants to help oversee their commercial interests. The monasteries, in short, became important trading destinations, and soon enough, towns and cities developed right outside their gates. Podcast footnote. As we were on the subject, I have to squabble with basically all the historians I have read on the subject of these monastic communities in Ireland. Every historian repeats the mantra that all the cities in Ireland were founded by the Vikings. And they also paint a picture of monastic communities very along the lines of those that I have just mentioned. Very energetic communities with secular people interfacing with monks, providing for their material needs, etc. I put it to you, this, to me, seems like an urban agglomeration. Sure, a huge portion of the population and the main reason for the population's existence may have been celibate monks engaged in otherworldly activities. But from my point of view, that's just another way to organize a city. Maybe none of these monastic communities survived the Viking era fully intact, and I'm maybe I'm being unkind to the historians. Still, to me, I suspect that this is a case of arbitrary distinction. If, for whatever reason, a whole bunch of people gather together in one place and engage in economic activities, even if one of the main things being traded is spiritual goods, that's a city. I'm looking at you, Burning Man. Anyway, maybe that's just me. End podcast footnote. This outline of monastic foundations is very similar to something that happened later in the timeline, but the process is so similar, I just want to address it here. I speak of the cities that started out as castles. When a noble was founding a castle, they were generally not interested in founding a city. They wanted to hold a strategically important point from which they could administer their land holdings. There was an important cultural element as well, as noble families sought to display their power to rivals by constructing intimidating fortresses. In any case, castle building was an expensive and labor-intensive process, especially once the use of stone began. The castle also tended to contain an administrative household, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And so, the castle building noble created a new, if supposedly temporary, populations cluster, even as they began generating long-term demand for luxury and consumer goods. And while the castle was generally not intended to protect the lives and property of the Lord's peasants, living in the shadow of a giant castle full of soldiers probably never hurt a person's chances of scaring off bandits. In many cases, this all led commoners of various kinds to begin clustering around the gates of the castle. And over time, the Lord would just recognize the new reality by extending the walls to enclose this new agglomeration. So, as we've discussed, in southern Europe, the heart of the empire, most cities regrew from the roots of old cities, with significant help from the administrative apparatus of the Catholic Church. Outside the empire, settlements were mostly new, and grew out of economic incentives, though with significant stimulus provided by the incoming religious orders of the Catholic Church, and castles eventually. Some settlements, such as those on the mouth of the Rhine, were driven by the harshness of their environment into becoming enthusiastic and daring merchants, which would eventually encourage the rapid growth of cities in this area. But some settlements like Visby have probably been there effectively forever, though they certainly expanded under these new conditions. And the same is true in reverse in southern Europe. While most of the existing settlements in southern Europe date back to the Roman era, uh, some settlements were so devastated by the political instability of the times that they upstakes and moved. But there's a few examples of settlements that went from being effectively unknown during the empire to achieving high levels of economic and political prominence in the Middle Ages. These are, effectively at least, completely new cities. 
The key examples in Southern Europe are probably Venice and Amalfi. We've discussed these cities at length before, so I don't want to rehash everything, but it's worth noting that they, like the cities at the mouth of the Rhine River, grew up in places that were not particularly well adapted to human settlement. In these cases, people chose to build there for security reasons, and soon found that they needed to trade to survive. And so while their neighbors were withdrawing from trade and investing in agriculture, the residents of Venice and Amalfi sought desperately for commodities that they could trade, and thus ended up being pioneers in the revival of the economic system. This leaves us one final region to cover, part of northern Europe that had been conquered by Rome. So what we're talking about here is northern France, England, parts of the Low Countries, and Germany. This region combines historical attributes from the other two regions, which, in the context of its own local history, would create new forces that would be exported eventually. In the northern parts of the empire, the population was never heavily urbanized. Of those places that had urbanized, many had not built walls before the crisis of the 3rd century. Many urban places were thus severely damaged in the first few waves of Germanic incursions. The rest hurriedly built walls, not all of which were built well. So, in short, the Germanic invasions of northern Gaul and Britannia progressively destroyed the cities of these regions. In some cases, the cities were directly destroyed by war. Others were cut off from the Roman administrative and trade system, which undermined them economically. When combined with the proclivities of their new Germanic overlords, the result was that all but the most important regional capitals, with the strongest walls, ended up abandoned in this area. The wealthy citizens fled to their countryside villas, where their dispersed wealth and loyal household slaves allowed them to hold down the countryside and face the incoming tribes on their own ground, for better or worse, leaving the cities fully abandoned in a way southern Europe never fully experienced. Particularly in Britain, literary sources describe Bath as a ruin and London as a creepy ghost town used for dumping rubbish. But Britain was an extreme case, and for many of the regional administrative centers, urban life clung to existence. As I've mentioned before, the Franks slid quickly and comfortably into a peaceful coexistence with the old Roman villa system of their new lands, and seemed to have done so with some level of local support. Economic conditions still caused demographic collapses in the cities, but as in Italy, the church remained in place, allowing some cities to persist in their main industry of housing rich people. Only now, these rich people happened to be the church. The cultural factors here require a little bit more elaboration than we gave them in southern European cities. In southern Europe, everyone clung to their urban communities, so it's hard to distinguish motivations. But in northern Europe, this choice by the church was set in a context where the new warrior aristocracy was distinctly not following the lead of the church, not living in the cities. And for every city that the church helped save, several cities were abandoned. So why did the church make this choice, and why did they save the cities that they saved? There was a combination of factors, but a lot of it can be summarized by the church in this period coming to strongly identify itself with the concept of Rome, a long-established identification of Rome with cities, and a gradual religious codification of the, the rules and associations that drove the church. The bishops of this region would serve to lead their congregations through the period of the invasions. The citizens that made up these congregations were quote-unquote Roman, as opposed to the Germanic interlopers which were coming in, and this helped drive the identification of Christianity with Romanness. As the Germanic nobles took up residence in the countryside, the bishop's identification with the city helped continue this association. But there's an element of stubbornness in this situation as well. The bishops remained in their cities because, back in the empire, that is where their predecessors had been set up as bishops. 
Once the bishop was set up in a city, it was basically illegal under church law for the position to be moved. Not that it says anything about this in the Bible, of course, you understand, but it became a tradition, and then it became a rule, and then it became a religious need. This in itself explains a lot of why some cities survived and some failed during the fall of the empire. In southern Europe, there were hundreds of cities, thousands even, and each of them got a bishop. Because back in the empire, that was the core of civilization, and so everybody got a bishop. But in the north, where things were less urbanized and administration was less well-connected, the church administration hadn't necessarily kept up with the pace of Christianization. There were just fewer bishops in general, and in many cities the church never got around to assigning one, and so those cities lacked the administrative framework that allowed others to survive. But this argument shouldn't be seen as universal. There were a lot of different situations. In some cases, the bishops ran when things got too dangerous, and in the chaos of the invasions, who was going to come after them if they talked their flock into moving from a city without a defensive wall to one that had one? And of course, many cities in Britain had bishops, but all of those cities fell into ruin after the withdrawal of the legions and the invasions of the Anglo-Saxons. The aid of the church, in short, did not guarantee survival. But it should be said that abandonment was not necessarily the end of the story for these Roman cities. Many old Roman cities, especially ones with walls, ended up being reoccupied relatively quickly, after only a century. Clearly, as the church came to identify itself with Rome and with cities, and as the Germanic tribes began converting to Christianity, these old, burned-out, spooky ruins began to take on a certain value. Some of this value was pragmatic, to be sure. There's just no denying that those old Roman walls were kind of annoying to attack, even if they were ruined. So if you had some valuable goods that you wanted to protect, setting up shop behind those walls might be a decent idea. But it wasn't just the security aspect. You see, those old Roman ruins, they might be deserted, they might be full of trash, heck, they might be inhabited by large numbers of creepy ghosts. But they had a certain quality. Those old ruins, they just seemed so wonderfully... legitimate. Like, sure, maybe you're only the lord of one village and a few shepherds, but if you set up shop in one of those old Roman towns, man, you get respect. You look kind of impressive to anyone who stopped in for a flag and a veil on some poor knights of Windsor. As a result of the legitimacy conveyed by associations with Rome, not to mention, you know, impressive monuments, political authorities that were able to began moving into the remains of the old Roman settlements and using them as strongholds and administrative centers. In some cases, they and a few dozen retainers just sort of set up shop in the old gatehouse or in a certain tower as this whole huge city rotted around them. But from such seeds can spring greatness. My favorite example of this kind of development is found in the history of Canterbury in southeastern England. A relatively minor place in urban times, Canterbury had the benefit of a wall, and was occupied by the kings of Kent. It also had pretty easy trade contacts with the continent, and it was not being attacked by Wessex all the time. So, a, a few benefits in its favor. But that wall... The kings of Kent were strong trading partners with the Frankish Empire, and so when the Pope sent a bishop to re-Christianize Britain, their first stop was with Canterbury. Now, following up on that sort of churchy stubbornness that I mentioned earlier, the Pope had intended this mission to proceed to London, which had been the main seat of the Roman administration of England, and was thus the proper seat for this new archbishop to set up shop. But London at this time was ruled by pagans, 
Several pagans, in fact, and as it happened to be on the border between Wessex, Mercia, Kent, and East Anglia. So it was a literal war zone, as well as being full of trash and inhabited apparently by ghosts. When the archbishop got to England and looked around, got the lay of the land, he decided to just ignore the pope and set up his seat at Canterbury. And despite some angry letters from the Pope and a follow-up mission a few years later that did eventually set up a bishop in London, man, that guy must have been scared all the time, Canterbury remained and remains the seat of the Archbishop to this day. And as with the cities in Italy, it was pretty much just the presence of the Archbishops in Canterbury that helped make Canterbury a city that would outlast the Middle Ages, even after the royal family of Kent was absorbed into Wessex and thus into England. So basically, the only reason any of us have ever heard of Canterbury is because there was an archbishop there. And the only reason the archbishop was there is because relatively friendly family in the royal family of Kent and man those walls. Now, in Northern Europe, I should say that the process by which these secular and these religious administrative centers developed was slightly different from Southern Europe. Having an administrative center in a location, be it religious or secular in nature, served to stimulate the local economy in much the same way that storing senators had done for centuries in the Roman Empire. As I said, the noble or bishop, they owned lands which generated revenues and resources which were then sent to the administrative hub for storage and redistribution. Over time, this helped reestablish transportation networks as investments were made in roads and stuff. The noble also had to have a fairly extensive household in the form of armed retainers and trained bureaucrats to help administer the local area and extract wealth from any unruly widows. Such individuals would be compensated either directly in kind in terms of wages, land, or lucrative positions. No matter the form of compensation, this would generate demand for consumer goods beyond the luxury items demanded by the noble themselves. Finally, the noble also had to send supplies out to their various holdings in order to, you know, keep up the mill or whatever. Though much of the day-to-day -day needs of the manors were produced or purchased locally, the nobles did invest in their upkeep, and these investments also required the purchase of goods and services for shipment out into the countryside. Now, this is all fairly similar to what was going on in southern Europe, but it was much more centralized to one family. While the, the bourgeoisie class would develop in northern Europe as well, it was not as quick as it happened in Italy. And in, in many places in Europe, these administrative center cities would remain primarily dependent on the economic activity that was generated by the processes of government. These economic activities did in, in turn serve to kickstart local agglomerations. But unless it became a self-sustaining market, the settlement would remain extremely dependent on the fortunes of that noble family whose administration the settlement housed. Many, many such centers came and went over the years, living and dying essentially by the fortunes of the family. So not all of these administrative centers ended up becoming uh, cities of any size. Just as not every monastery developed a uh, city around it, and not every castle, and not every random river crossing. What differentiated the ones that grew from those that didn't is something we're going to get into more next time. So for now, let's wrap up. Today we started off with a discussion of the historiography of medieval urbanism. As I struggled to keep my cool when discussing the bizarre tautology-related received narrative that was being repeated in college textbooks as late as the 2000s. For our discussion of the topic, I began by splitting Europe into three. Southern Europe, the portion of Northern Europe that had been dominated by the Romans, and the portion that had not. We then saw how Southern Europe was mostly made up of Roman cities that survived the fall of the Empire, despite some outliers like Venice, and despite massive demographic collapse. 
In these places, the Roman administration and the local economy helped preserve urbanism until the cities were truly isolated economically and ravaged by illness. At that point, the church stepped in, and the cities transitioned into functioning as administrative centers for the local bishops, who were able to keep the lights on due to their possession of local land holdings. These holdings were gradually taken over by leading local families who came to compete with and eventually surpass the bishop's power, bringing these Italian cities back to something like a republican government by the end of the early Middle Ages. In Northern Europe, outside the empire, the wider economic situation was in some ways inverse to that inside the empire, as the Northern Arc rose in economic prominence. Here, new cities sprang up along trade routes. Initially, this process was entirely organic, but as Christianization and feudalization progressed, many cities ended up being founded outside the gates of monasteries or castles. In the part of Northern Europe inside the empire, all of these processes and more transpired. Some cities managed to hold on due to their use as administrative centers by the Catholic Church, or, in precious few cases, by the new Germanic kings. In most cases, the old Roman cities were abandoned for long enough to fall into ruin before their impressive architecture, walls, and tie to the Roman past made them attractive sites for local lords to set up their own administrative capitals. Here, too, the new northern arc of trade encouraged city formation in new places, often aided by the monastic orders and the construction of castles. Of course, not every castle, monastery, Roman ruin, or bridge crossing would become an important city. These were effectively seeds of agglomeration, not all of which had the necessary conditions to grow. And even if they did, there was no guarantee that they would grow in the face of competition from other centers. But that story is going to have to wait for the next exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.